This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Thank you very much, um, and hello to everybody. Uh, I always think we should be sending well wishes to our noisy neighbors as they get out of their session. They, uh, I, I really just feel happy that they are reaching for their sobriety, and um, I, I, even though it can be distracting and sort of disturbing at the end of a meditation, I always try to make a practice when I'm here to just send them wishes for um, safety and joy and reconciliation um, as, they, as they deal with their addiction. And may we all be so um, intentional dealing with our own addictions. But tonight I am here to talk about another episode in our spiritual genealogy. We've been talking about our ancestors in the practice for the past Oh, I don't remember how many weeks. Tonight, I will be talking about um, the Buddha's own flesh and blood, his heir and descendant, his son, Rahula. And I must say, I practiced many years before I had a clue that the Buddha even had a son. So you get to learn it maybe earlier in your practice than I did. This is a story, uh, it's much based in tale and myth, And there's a little history that we can know, but not much. And this is from a time before there was very much reading or writing going on in the the world that the Buddha was in. When these stories were eventually written down, they were couched in poetry and imagery. And I will be using words from some of the old uh, translations, and you'll, you'll recognize probably when I use those directly. And we start Rahula's life tonight uh, by meeting his father, the young man Siddhartha, who was, uh, after his awakening, known as the Buddha. Some other names or titles you might hear tonight are Lord, the Blessed One, the Tathagata, the Bodhisattva, Prince, all titles used back in the Buddha's time. So the teacher we now know as the Buddha was given the personal name Siddhartha. When our story opens, Siddhartha was still a prince and a young married man, living a life of comfort and ease in his father, the king's household. Sometimes we call him king, sometimes raja. But we know that his rich lifestyle was no longer completely satisfying to this young man because he began going out of the home compound on rides with his charioteer, Chana. They, and just like young men everywhere, just riding around, they would go out to the nearby town of Kapilavatu, and they could observe ordinary people just going about their daily lives. But we are told when he saw a sick person, an old person, and a dead human body, 
that Siddhartha woke up to the suffering of human life. This will happen to me as well, he realized. We think he was around 30 years old. That's about the time we all begin to get the drift. On the next chariot ride, he saw a wandering ascetic, a holy person. There, he thought, was a way of life different from what he had become used to. And living such a life, he thought, might help him to face his fears about old age, sickness, and death. Siddhartha realized he would have to leave his comfortable family home and learn how to experience uh, life sufferings and not be overwhelmed by them. This is a direction that we are all taking, I think. He wasn't alone. Other wealthy young men of that time, if they had the resources and um, the leisure, were also leaving their homes to study with various teachers. They were all looking for a spiritual path. But an expected message came to Siddhartha. A son has been born to thee, O prince. On hearing the news... Siddhartha understood that this child could be a tie that bound him to his royal life and to his family. This newborn son could prevent his search for enlightenment. A bondage has been born, a fetter has been born, he exclaimed. The pleasure and joy one feels towards spouse and children is actually called a soft fetter in scripture a restraint, tying us to life, planting the seeds of suffering, not just because we will eventually be separated from our loved ones, we know that, but because their very existence tends to make us cling more deeply to our own life. A few days after the birth, Siddhartha's father, the Raja Sudodana, named his grandson Rahula, The word means fetter or impediment. Some scholars, however, um, are really uncomfortable with the thought of the Buddha's son being considered an impediment. And so they say that the name came because there was an eclipse of the moon. And eclipses were thought to have been caused by the Hindu Asura serpent, Rahu, taking a bite out of the moon. So you may believe as you wish. We are told that Siddhartha spent hours by himself deliberating, and finally he became firmly set on his quest. In the scripture, the Jataka Tales, we find a really bitter, sweet description of Siddhartha slipping away from the family home to find enlightenment. These are the words from a really old translation. So the Bodhisat sent Chana to prepare his departure. But first, he thought, I will just look at my son. And rising from his couch, he went to the apartment of Rahula's mother and opened her chamber door. At that moment, a lamp fed with sweet-smelling oil was burning dimly, in the inner chamber. The mother of Rahula was asleep on a bed strewn with jasmine flowers. She was resting with her hand on the head of her son. 
Stopping with his foot on the threshold, the Bodhisattva thought, If I lift her hand to take up my son, she will awake, and that will prevent my going. I will come back and see him when I have become a Buddha. I find this story poignant, all these contradictory thoughts on the threshold, to hold his son, to not waken his wife, to stay a while, to leave. Maybe he was also being a bit of an optimist, thinking he would become a Buddha and be back in a few weeks to hold his son. But in any event, he turned away without crossing the threshold and left the palace that very night. It took six years for Siddhartha to find awakening, not a few weeks. But sadly, Rahula's mother died within a few days of the birth. Her own sister then became a loving mother to the little boy as he continued to grow up and was raised in the wealthy household of his grandfather, King Sudodana. And in Rahula's seventh year, the Buddha kept his promise. He returned to his home city of Kapilavatu. On the seventh day of the Buddha's return, his mother took Rahula to see his father, who was finishing a meal. It was confusing for the boy, because up to that time, the only father figure that he had known was his grandfather, the king. But she pointed out that the handsome man who was already recognized in their kingdom as wise and holy, that man is your father. His mother told Rahula, since his father had renounced the royal life, Rahula was the next prince in line. She told him to ask his father for his inheritance. I can picture an amazed little boy starting to realize that this handsome, special man was indeed his own father. I imagine Rahula wanting to have a real father at last and to obey his mother's wishes. After the meal was over, we are told that Rahula followed the Buddha toward his quarters. He trotted along, repeating to his father, Lord, even your shadow is pleasing to me. And finally he spoke as his mother wished, saying, Give me my inheritance. The Buddha thought to himself, He desires his father's inheritance, but the princely life is wrought with troubles. I shall give him the benefit of my spiritual enlightenment instead. And then the Buddha turned to Sariputta, one of his principal monks, and said, Ordain him. And so Rahula did inherit his father's way of life. He became the first little Samanara, uh, Samanera it's pronounced, or novice monk, a little boy, seven years old. But then it wasn't long before the king, Sudodana, discovered not only his grandson Rahula, but a number of young males in the extended royal family had requested ordination. Even the Buddha's half-brother, Nanda, they too wanted to receive teachings from the Buddha himself. The king, to his credit, did not object, but asked his son from then on to only ordain a minor with the consent of a parent or a guardian. 
And the Buddha found his father's advice very wise. And so from that time, it became a rule that a guardian or parents or even a spouse would be asked to consent before someone was given ordination into the Sangha. Gil Fransdahl points out that from the time Rahula was seven then, he was under the care of his father, no longer in a household, but in a group of men on a spiritual path. His father took great interest in Rahula's moral and spiritual education. The Buddha assigned him to the special care of his own trusted companions in the Sangha, Sariputta, who ordained him, and who was said to be second only to the Buddha himself in explaining Dharma, and also Moggallana, a man who was well-practiced in meditation and also very good at psychic powers. That could have been fun for a kid. Rahula responded to his new life by being an eager and responsive and attentive student. We are told each morning as he awoke, he would take a handful of sand and he would say, may I today have as many words of counsel from my teacher as there are here grains of sand. In fact, the Buddha said that of all his disciples, Rahula was the most anxious to receive training. What kind of training did Rahula receive? We have four suttas containing Buddha's special teachings to Rahula as he grew up and matured as a monk. In these four suttas, Rahula is addressed directly by the Buddha, and he shares questions and answers with his father about the Dharma. Throughout the years of his son's education and practice, the Buddha was very aware of Rahula's age and his level of Dharma understanding. We know this because in each of these four Rahula suttas, the Buddha aims at a more and more advanced stage of Dharma training. The first teaching is called the Exhortation to Rahula. Uh, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya, a great big thick book of scripture. It's number 61. It came shortly after his first ordination at age seven. We're going to talk more about that one. And in it, the Buddha taught him the importance of telling the truth and how to act and speak and think carefully. Later on, when Rahula was in his teens, he received a pointed correction from his father. Here's how it came about. When the Buddha and Rahula went along the road to do their daily alms rounds, scripture commentary describes them. The Buddha went along, followed by Rahula. The pair was like an auspicious royal elephant and his noble offspring, a royal swan with its beauteous signet, a regal lion and its stately cub. Both are described as being golden in complexion. Both were of the warrior caste, both had renounced royal power, but they walked like kings. So on this day, Rahula, teenager, was admiring his father ahead of him, and he began to think, I too am handsome, like my parent, the Blessed One. Beautiful is the Buddha's form, and mine is similar. 
The author, Neoponicatera, pictures the Buddha walking along, maybe casually, wondering, what is that lad Rahula considering as he follows me? So maybe because of the father's curiosity, the Buddha used his psychic powers to read Rahula's thoughts. Uh-oh, he instantly saw that Rahula was becoming very proud of his appearance, and he decided to reprove Rahula at once. Gil Fransdahl, a father of sons himself, summarizes what the Buddha said to his teenage son. When seen with wisdom, the physical body should not be viewed as me, myself, or mine. In fact, one shouldn't see any feeling, perception, mental activity, or consciousness through the concepts of me, myself, or mine. Scripture says, when Rahula heard this from his father, the teacher, he felt like a thief who had been caught with the goods. He knew he had been admonished seriously and returned immediately to the monastery without collecting food for the day. The second teaching to Rahula came as a result of this incident It is called the Great Discourse of Exhortation. The very evening after he was admonished, Rahula went to his father and asked for instruction in breath meditation and received the Great Discourse. This tells me that there was no acrimony left after the morning's correction. Rahula, I think, went to his father in reconciliation and to show how much he respected the wisdom his father had to offer. And in return, his father showed him that he carried no grudge, and he gave Rahula a detailed teaching, a beautiful teaching. No anger was carried forward by the father at Rahula's self-centered teenage pride, nor by the son at being admonished so accurately. By the time Rahula was 20, the Buddha must have understood that he was close to liberation. He invited Rahula on a walk into the woods, a beautiful natural setting, so encouraging of reflection. We are told that the Buddha sat with his son at the base of a great sal tree, It's not a redwood, but I picture it like that. These trees can rise in nature to be almost 100 feet tall. So you can imagine these huge trunks with these great roots reaching into the earth where they could sit and just rising around the two men. Buddha spoke to his son in words that seem almost like a guided meditation, describing every subtle clinging to self that might stand in the way to final enlightenment. This is called the shorter discourse of advice to Rahula. We assume that Rahula was then ready for his highest ordination, and he received the high ordination in his 21st year. This is an assumption. We are not told that. We are told, though, that he became an arahat, an enlightened one, And after that, his friends referred to him as Rahula Bada, or Rahula the Lucky. 
He said, they call me Rahula the Lucky for two reasons. One is, I'm the son of the Buddha. And the other is, I have seen the truth. And finally, we have a very short sutta called the Rahula Sutta. It is a concise description of the life of a monk. And this is a sutta that appears uh, fairly frequently because the Buddha repeated it to Rahula often during his upbringing in the monastery. And now what about Rahula's monastic life after final ordination as an adult monk? Well, there is almost no record of Rahula as an adult monk. We have a few words possibly spoken by Rahula himself in the Theragata, the verses of the elders, the male monastics, and a few responses in another scripture called the Questions of King Melinda. They are the only evidence we have of the adult Rahula. There is no account telling us he was active as a teacher or in any other way. The author Neoponica Terra speculates this could have been intentional because being the master's son, perhaps he did not wish to come into any importance himself. But other scholars believe, as I do myself, that Rahula passed away before the Buddha and also before his teachers, Sariputta and Moggallana, men older than himself. We have no information as to the time or the circumstances of Rahula's death, but he was not forgotten. King Ashoka was an important Buddhist emperor on the Indian subcontinent in the third century BCE, so not that long after the Buddha and Rahula lived. King Ashoka erected stupas in memory of great disciples of the Buddha. And one of these stupas was dedicated to Rahula because he was considered to be worthy of pilgrimage and veneration by the samaneras, the young monks. The stupa helped them to remember and to imitate Rahula's devotion to the Dharma and to his father, the Buddha, his wise teacher. And so there ends the story of Rahula, the fetter, but more truly, the beloved son of Siddhartha Gautama. But I want to say a little more about the Rahula Suttas. Um, I'm just going to give you a brief summary, and then you're going you're to do something with me. The Rahula Sutta is short. It's the one that is just the verses about monastic life, the conditions they should live in. It talks about their huts and their garments, the friends and the attitudes they should cultivate. And this is the one that the Buddha repeated often to Rahula as he was coming up as a monk in training. And then the great discourse of exhortation uh, was to the teenage boy, uh, forgiven for his pride. And the shorter discourse was to the young man almost at the point of enlightenment. These two suttas contain profound teachings, well worth studying. And if you want their numbers, I can give them to you later. But I want to look at the first sutta with you, the one that is called the Exhortation to Rahula, the Rahula Vada. That's number 61. So this teaching was given to Rahula when he was just seven years old. 
fairly new to life with his father, but familiar enough with the monastery routines that when he saw his father coming to instruct him, he hurried to set out a seat and water for washing the feet. And then I picture Rahula just sitting maybe next to his father, listening attentively while the Buddha used what was to hand to teach this little boy about telling the truth. And so I want to enact this teaching. I, I think it's, it's just kind of something fun we can do. Um, I'm going to be the Buddha, and you're going to be Rahula. And so when I ask you a question, just respond to me, yes, sir. So what are you going to answer? Yes, sir. All right, and mean it, because this is the teacher. That's me. So pretend that this is the water dipper that the Buddha used to wash his feet. Okay, here it is. It's next to them. The two of them probably are sitting alone in wherever it is that little Rahula was living. So I'm going to use the words of the sutta, and you're going to answer me, and you're going to learn the lesson. (laughs) So the Blessed One, having left a little bit of water in the water dipper, said, Rahula, do you see this little bit of water left over in the water dipper? Yes, sir. All right. That's how little of a monk there is in anyone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie. Having tossed away that little bit of leftover water, the Blessed One said, Rahula, do you see how this little bit of leftover water is tossed away? Yes, sir. All right. Whatever there is of a monk in anyone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie is tossed away, just like that. Then the Blessed One said, Rahula, do you see how this water dipper is turned upside down? Yes, Whatever there is of a monk in anyone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie is turned upside down, just like that. And having turned the water dipper right side up, the Blessed One said, Rahula, do you see how empty and hollow this water dipper is? Rahula, whatever there is of a monk in anyone who feels no shame in telling a deliberate lie is empty and hollow, just like this. So then he describes a royal war elephant trained to give his life for the king. I'm sure a little boy would love that image. And he exhorts Rahula to train himself never to lie, not even in jest. It's not said in the sutta, but I'm thinking maybe the Buddha had discovered Rahula was not being truthful around the monastery, and he wanted to stop that in the bud before the habit became firm. So while the teaching imagery is right for a seven-year-old, the message is clear to us too. Don't lie, even in jest. Sometimes we fall down there, but it's a good thing to remember. Don't lie, even in jest. And I want to go further into this very same sutta because there is another teaching that ever since I read it the first time, I've always liked. Uh, uh, Maybe a couple of years ago in a sutta study session with Shaila, 
uh, I think you were in that session. I'll, you'll see if you remember it. Shaila pointed out that some suttas may be long, but they're logical, and they can be diagrammed or charted. You remember that? And she urged us to try it. So at that time, I actually made a flow chart of the longest section of this sutta that I'm going through with you, the Rahulavada. And last Friday morning, I was sitting at home at my desk, and I was thinking about you know, this talk and how I'm going to finish putting it together. But I was also thinking about the class I was going to be teaching that afternoon at Elmwood Jail. And I remembered this flowchart. And so I brought it up on my computer, and I saw all this Dharma language on this flowchart. But I also saw the message that I like in it. And so I revised the flowchart using ordinary language. And I'll tell you, um, 2,500 years after giving this message to Rahula, and not in a monastery this time, but in a jail, the Buddha showed everyone how to make sense of their direct experience. The women really um, got the message of the teaching in this sutta. And I'm thinking maybe you'll find it useful too. So I have brought you some flow charts. So probably there's enough here. I have a few more. If, if maybe we could pass these around, you can start looking at them. Thank you. This may be the first time you've seen the suttas as flowcharts. So if you look on the very bottom, in kind of light print is the actual um, name of the sutta. But this is the logical sense of it. And so um, whether you want to be looking at the flow chart, you don't need to, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you how it played out in the jail. Um, because I asked the women exactly the question that the Buddha asked his son when he began this teaching in the sutta. And he said, what do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? And so I used exactly those words to my class. What is a mirror for? And they said exactly what Rahula did, for reflection. And so we had to go on and discuss, well, what does it mean when a person reflects? Well, when a person reflects, it means we give serious thought or consideration to something. And then I, I reminded them, so everybody's telling you now, I bet, that you should think before you act, right? And they said, yeah, and somebody yelled out, and how are we supposed to do that? And I said, I'm going to tell you. Here is how to be mindful, not just before you act, but while you are acting, and after you have acted, by considering your actions of body, speech, and mind. So why would we do that? We can prevent pain, and we can prevent painful consequences by reflecting on our own actions. When we do that, we won't have so many reasons to feel shame or remorse or regret, and we will have plenty of reasons to feel happy and peaceful and joyful and skillful. So how should you reflect? What should you reflect on? Um, 
When should you reflect? And so this is what the flowchart tells, and this is what the Buddha told to his son. So if you look at the top, I don't know if they still use flowcharts in coding, do they? I, they did when I was trained many years ago. Um, and the first um, egg is the act, reflect. And the squares tell you when, before I act, while I act, or after I act. And what we realized is the diamond is the key. On this flowchart, here is the key. What do I look at? I look at the effects on me, the effects on others, the effects on both others and myself. And then there are two possibilities. Pleasant consequences, bringing happiness, well-being, and no one gets hurt. But the other kind of effects might bring painful consequences, my act brings suffering. Someone gets hurt, me or someone else. And so as we follow down the logic, and the colors are part of it, they figured it all out. They would be good coders, probably. So in that kind of peach color, before I act, I think about the effects. If it brings happiness, I do the act. If it follows the other track, um, if someone gets hurt, I do not do the act. I stop before I start. I can also reflect while I am acting in the very same way, the effects on me and others. If while I'm acting there are no um, bad effects, no effects that cause suffering, I can continue the act. But if there are acts that cause harm, then I stop doing the act. And this is pretty important. After I have acted, we can all do this one. We're all probably pretty good at reflecting after acting. Sometimes we don't want to do it, but it's very useful. What were the effects of something I did? And again, following the no one gets hurt side, I can be happy and glad with a peaceful mind. But if I know that I was hurt, someone has been hurt because of what I did, Look at the, the blue box down there on the right side. Talk about, this is what the Buddha said, talk about the act with a teacher or a wise friend um, and learn for the future. Plan not to do the act again, not to cause harm. My students said you could talk to your sponsor. So this is something that, um, uh, it's a really simple little logic but it is exactly, um, it was very useful for them because having found this diamond on the flowchart, uh, I mentioned to them that this kind of reflection is not to be done just once. The Buddha's words were, reflect repeatedly on your actions. And so um, the students told me I could tell their stories, when I finished with this discussion with them and going through this little flowchart, I was surprised at how easily they got it and how meaningful it was. One of the very young ones, and by young they have to be at least 19, to, and no, they have to be over 18 to be in jail. Her face was covered with tears, and she said, um, I was released from jail to live with my parents, which is very difficult for all of us, if I kept the peace there. And she said, I 
for no reason, well, for a reason that had nothing to do with my mother, I screamed at my mother and they reported me and the judge remanded me back to jail. She said, if I had learned this, I wouldn't be sitting in jail and I wouldn't have yelled at my mother and I love my mother. She was going down all the consequences of the act that she had committed that caused her harm, that caused her mother harm, and she made this resolution. I am not coming back to jail again, and I'm never treating my mother like that again. I don't know if she'll follow it, but you know, she thought it up all by herself. Nobody had to tell her. She said, if I had learned this before, I might not have done it. I don't know, but maybe she won't do it again. Somebody else said, um, I'm going to frame this. And somebody else thought, you know what, I could stick this on the bunk that's on top of me, and then I would see it every time I lie on my bunk. So maybe we should stick this on our ceiling or something. Um, as written in scripture, this section of the Rahulavada is about three pages of language. And I would encourage you to read it sometime, and probably you'd have to read it about three times. First, just get the idea, and the second and third to actually pull the sense out of it, which is why I did the flowchart. It's quick. Um, I couldn't have read the three pages in jail, but the flowchart, easy. The lesson, though, is very simple. Keep reflecting on the consequences of our actions. The Buddha emphasized over and over that if we clearly see our direct experience, we will see what brings us suffering and what does not. Learning about our own direct experience by repeated reflection in just this way carries us along the path of practice toward the release of suffering. Our own experience becomes the teacher to show us suffering, and the causes of suffering in our own life, and showing us what is skillful and what does not cause suffering. Even a seven-year-old can understand this. Even I can understand it. So I hope you can, too. I guess it's, it's just about nine o'clock. Um, let's just sit still for a moment. And... Just remember, um, I would ask you as a, a creative takeaway from this evening to remember that everything you need to become liberated from your suffering, you have. It is only a matter of removing the obstacles to our understanding. and to reflect on our own actions and their consequences repeatedly is a road going in that direction that will help us to see, to understand, and to abandon what causes suffering and to cultivate what brings happiness and joy. And so may we all um, help each other on that path and see ourselves clearly. May it be so. Thank you very much for your time and attention tonight.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.